With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. This show was heard on WBCQ The Planet every every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm getting a little feedback here. Let me, all right. Anyway, uh, this show was heard on WBCQ, The Planet, every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. WBCQ, broadcast out of Monticello, Maine, in Arista County. And also the show could be heard on ipmnation.com on uh, Saturday afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That time is subject to change. You can also uh, listen to this radio on YouTube if you visit the Camp Constitution YouTube channel. We uh, try to uh, archive them and put them up on YouTube as soon as we can. And uh, we this is probably about our 63rd or 64th show. And this uh, show is brought to you by Camp Constitution, which, among other things, hosts a week-long family camp, which will be held in little more than two months, July 10th to the 17th in beautiful Ringe, New Hampshire, the Toanippi Christian Retreat Center. To learn more about the camp and Camp Constitution, you can visit our website at campconstitution.net. Well, I'm very pleased and honored to have our guest today, uh, Father... Michael Carl. Uh, Father Carl, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, uh, uh, let me give a little background before uh, we I, we start interviewing you. But um, back, the marathon bombing in Boston, Massachusetts, took place on April 15, 2013. And I was a, um, we were having a rally scheduled on the Lexington Green that particular, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, on the 15th, I was up in Maine at a Tea Party rally and got word of the incident, and when I got home on the 19th, now, if the April 15th is Patriots Day in Suffolk County and a few other counties in Massachusetts and also um, uh, in Maine, um, it, it's always that Monday where the uh, closest to the 19th, which is the famous, the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington and Concord where they hold the Boston Marathon, and there is a reenactment on Lexington Green of the famous battle. There's a reenactment in Concord. There's a parade. Lots of festivities and activities. So um, on on uh, April 19th, uh, there was a rally. Now, that's the original date. There was a rally planned by various uh, freedom groups. The Oath Keepers, I think, was the sponsor. And it was my job to pick up uh, Larry Pratt of Gun Owners of America, who uh, had already flown in the night before. He was at a hotel near near Logan Airport in Boston. And I got a call from the organizer, Randy Swanson, of Oath Keepers. It was probably around 6 in the morning. 
and he told me what was going on, and it was my, um, I automatically thought that, my goodness, the uh, all of these Muslim terrorist cells had just erupted because we were told we weren't, able, we weren't supposed to leave our home, shelter in place, that the uh, night, late night before in the early morning hours, uh, one of the brothers of the two accused uh, bombers was shot and killed. They had killed, a, uh, I think, an MIT security guard and what have you. Uh, and the, the younger brother was on the loose. But because of the urgency of this uh, and this idea of shelter in place, don't leave your home, schools are canceled or what have you, I thought that, you know, that all of these Muslim cells had erupted. Well, I get to the Logan Airport driving from uh, my home on the West Roxbury section of Boston. Uh, it was as quiet uh, as a, usually a Sunday morning. I couldn't believe it. It was really eerie. And I see these signs and these big neon signs telling us to shelter in place. Again, I then I kind of realized it was just one guy on the loose. And one guy can be uh, kind of dangerous, but I don't think you need to lock the whole, not just Boston, but the whole greater Boston area. Most of eastern Massachusetts was locked down. Um, and anyway, so our guest, uh, Father Michael Carl, uh, he was a former journalist for World Net Daily. He's a freelance writer. He's also the... Um, uh, the father of Christ the King Charismatic Episcopal Church in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Well, Father Carl, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be here. Now you have some back. You have a extensive knowledge in this subject, not just of the bomb, Massachusetts, the bombing itself, but uh, you gave a wonderful presentation a few days ago in the town of Dedham, Massachusetts, on the subject. Give us your background about your knowledge uh, of the uh, the local Muslims in Boston and maybe even discuss a little bit about the politicians that have enabled that enabled these um, militant Muslims. Well, we don't have enough time to list that. Uh, <laughs> I know that. that. List, but uh, but uh, I suppose the most relevant thing would be to go back to um, 2009 when it was learned that there was a fellow by the name of Tariq Mahana who was a Muslim student. He was supposedly a student in the pharmacy school at like Tufts University or someplace like that. And he had been arrested with about two other conspirators in an attempt to obtain a large number of weapons and ammunition. And their objective, as I understood it, after, you know, writing an article on it for World Net Daily, was that they were going to try to shoot up an area shopping mall. And after doing some checking, it seemed as if the evidence was pointing to the fact that they were looking to try to shoot up a mall in like Natick or Framingham or someplace like that. And that's and about 20, 25 miles out west of Boston. 25 miles west of Boston. So then that got my curiosity up and I started nosing around looking for um, influence in that area. And so I found a number, to my uh, surprise, I found a number of mosques in the Boston area. Now the first one I located was like in Somerville on the main street there. And it turns out that that's the Islamic Society of Boston Mosque and the imam there, you know, has some influence with, you know, a fairly uh, significant portion of the more radical element. It, I, I use that term guardedly because of things we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And it led me to have to go interview the imam at a place, at a mosque called the Mosque for the Praising of Allah on Shalmet Street. And it turns out that mosque is not but about three or four blocks away from the major Islamic Cultural Center and Mosque at Broxbury Crossing. And of course, that was the mosque that was, they were the Muslim American Society, 
which is an affiliate of the, actually founded by the Muslim Brotherhood, along with the Islamic Society of North America, the Islamic Circle of North America, the Muslim, Muslim Student Association, and a number of other groups in this area. Uh, Tom Menino, the former mayor of Boston, allowed this group, Muslim American Society, to purchase the land to build that mosque, and it's, you know, palatial in its size, uh, at a very, very, very cheap price. But at the moment, you know, what I was getting back to what I was talking about was I went to interview the imam of the mosque for the praising of Allah, and his name was Abdullah Farooq. And it turns out Abdullah Farooq knows or knew uh, Tariq Mahana, the fellow that was you know, arrested by the authorities here on the suspicion of trying to acquire weapons for a terrorist attack. And his two conspirators got away. But uh, Mahana, I think, is doing time now for that. But I went and interviewed Abdullah Farouk, you know, and went to his mosque, and he gave me a big bear hug and called me brother and all of this stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, sat knee-to-knee -knee with the guy, and he was telling me that, you know, Tariq Mahana was just a model student, that he had, he think, he thought that the uh, the authorities, the Massachusetts State Police and the FBI and others had framed him for this, that he just couldn't, because he seemed always so mild-mannered and polite and everything, he couldn't believe that this guy could be a terrorism suspect. And I said, okay, you know. Well, I didn't agree with him, but, you know, I went on and did the interview and wrote the article about it. And then found... And by the way, people can, access, I just, uh, people can access these articles uh, today, WorldNet Daily? Yes, they can if they type in the correct uh, headline, but you'd have to be able to go to the search search bar on the WorldNet Daily, WND.com page, and type in the actual subject, you know, and then you'll, then it'll bring you up a menu, like basically like a meta crawler, you know, does on the internet. It'll bring you up the menu of the articles in the past that mentioned this person's name. And Farouk will be up there several times because I wrote an article about him when Northeastern University fired him, and your services are no longer needed as an imam for the Muslim students because we've discovered that that you were supporting terrorist groups in your talks to the Muslim students at Northeastern University. What what year was that? What what year was that he was fired? A, he fired he was fired in like two thousand fourteen. Two thousand thirteen okay. was where we, you know, need to get back to the original topic which is the Boston bombing. Because it turns out that Farouk knew both of those guys too, uh Jokar and Tamerlan Sarnayev. And when I interviewed him about that, uh he also couldn't believe, you know, he pretended to be totally surprised by this and you know it's the usual Muslim story of you know I can't believe that these people would do this thing because you know and he was spouting the lines about how Muslims are generally peace-loving people now he had, he had a lot of nerve saying that because in 2010 I had interviewed him another time and that was immediately following the time that a group of guys snuck into the Roxbury mosque and videotaped uh, Abdullah Farouk, in one of his sermons, so to speak, talking about jihad. And he was saying that all of you Muslims should be the best Muslims you can be. And then he said there's two or three types of jihad. There's jihad of the sword, there's jihad of the pen, and there's cultural jihad. And so it, he, he got away with saying the things that he said because he never actually verbally in the interview, the audio, what I, man I managed to get a copy of the video, and it was inserted, you know, in the article about that that I wrote for World Net Daily. Uh, and I forgot to mention Thursday night that Baruch's other claim to fame was that he was named by Governor, former Governor Deval Patrick 
to be the diversity instructor for all state employees. I don't know if he still holds that position or not. But he has ties to advocating for jihad. And there is no doubt, based on all of the evidence, that Tamerlan and Jokhar Tsarnaev, the two alleged you know, and accused, and now because you know, Tamerlan was killed, Tamerlan was the one that was killed on Friday, April 18th that year in 2013, and Jokhar has now been given the death penalty for that. Uh, um, I forgot what I was saying, but I mean, these two gentlemen knew Abdullah Farouk. And so he he would he's going to have a hard time uh, living down any potential you know accusations that he is an advocate for jihad because he was caught on video advocating jihad and one of the analysts that I sent the audio to uh, analyzed it and listened and said well this is basic double speak and inversion of reality and what fulfilled the Muslim doctrine of taqiyya which is lying to infidels to advance the cause of Islam because he used all the code words to avoid the official accusation that he's advocating jihad, which is violent terrorism and revolution, more or less, but by saying, you know, be the best Muslim you can be, you know, jihad of the pen and these other things and playing up the aspect of the internal struggle aspect of it, but also getting in there and asking and advocating that they take up the pen, they take up the sword in the cause of Islam. And, you know, you can pass that off as figurative language, but we know exactly what they meant, and he meant exactly what he said, was taking up the sword, which is violent jihad, which is the obligation of every Muslim according to Islamic law. And I think that's a long-winded explanation, but, uh, you know, let's take, we can take it from there. Well, let me, let me ask you a question, and I, this would be, of course, a subjective answer, but why do you think that the liberal politicians, and even maybe some conservative politicians, but mostly people on the left, like the late Mayor Menino, like Governor Deval Patrick, former governor, why are they catering to the Muslims uh, in the United States? Uh, there, was a, there was a Unitarian church in the town of Weymouth, just south of Boston, with a big sign, we, you know, we support the uh, the, the Muslims. When apparently you would think that the left, you know, pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, pro-whatever, all and the Muslims, at least to their, they don't, they don't, uh, they're not too charitable towards homosexuals. They're not in favor of abortion. Yet people of these two different value systems seem to be working together. Can, can you explain it? Because I really, I do have an answer. I don't know if it's the right answer or not, but I think they have a common enemy, folks like us, people and uh, Christians. But what, what uh, is your? I, I think you've actually answered the question is, you know, David Horowitz, the former communist radical turned conservative, you know, some people say he's neocon, but he's written, written, uh, yeah, I think was it Michael Savage called him the red diaper doper babies, but I think he's become more conservative lately. And he wrote a book essentially talking about this subject, that there's an alliance between the left and Islam that allows them to, well, in this case, the Muslims see it as that they're playing the left as useful idiots, and most of the people on the left don't realize that. But it allows them to, in this issue of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, to go after their common enemy, which is Western civilization, or in the left's ideology, white guilt, or 
guilt over the success of the West and feeling this sense of obligation to try to bring the country down so we can be like all of the other nations. And it has echoes of strangely like the ancient Israelites when Samuel told them, well, you don't want a king. Uh, you don't want a king. God was going to rule over you. But they said, no, no, give us a king because we want to be like everybody else. Everybody else. That's right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what the left's idea is. They, are, they feel such torment and guilt over the success of the United States. And it has everything to do with their worldview. And the worldview, essentially, of the left is mostly regarding uh, alliance with an evolutionary point of view and also uh, a socialist-type worldview, which means they have this very uh, jaded view of what equality means. And so because you believe that anyone, because they believe they're so noble and so righteous that and they've never been able to get rich on their own because of their own hard work or whatever, then that must obviously mean that if you did get rich, you had to have cheated. And that's how they justify, you know, the soak the rich taxes, the progressive, what they call the progressive tax system, is because they believe that they're not really taking anything from these people and they have no guilt about it because they believe they're just recouping ill-gotten gain because of this view that if you're successful in the West, you had to have been a capitalist exploiter, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you look at the Islamic value system in the worldview, they are very socialistic in their economics, except when it comes to selling the West oil. But that's another story. But they have this very egalitarian, socialistic view of economics, and they believe in ultimate equality. We're all going to be equal in terms of Allah, and therefore, if you're rich, you need to give most of it away to help poor, poor Muslims. And so essentially, it's a common ground view against free enterprise and the Christian, you know, Protestant, Calvinist work ethic, etc. And so that allows them to work together. Again, like I said, starting off on this apparently second, second lengthy explanation, is that they don't realize, the liberals in this country don't realize that if the Muslims take over, they're toast too, just like the rest of us, because they're viewed as useful idiots and infidels. And so they're either going to have to agree to live in a demi status in Islam, which means you live as a second-class citizen, an infidel agreeing to live under an Islamic regime, paying the jizya, and you know, live in as a second-class citizen with almost no rights whatsoever except the right to eat and breathe, you know, and do things like that. And they don't uh, realize you, that. Anyway, uh, that one. You mentioned um, the, um, the, term, the, the, the term where uh, it's permissible to lie to non-Muslims and yes. be, almost become friends, or at least apparently friends, in order to advance uh, jihad. Can you go into that a little bit? Yes. As a matter of fact, the concept mentioned is called takia, and it's permissible to lie to infidels to advance the cause of Islam. And what that means is, according to one of the verses in the Quran, uh, you are, deceit is completely permissible. And there is a verse in the Quran that talks about, I'm trying to find in my notes here because I can cite the exact place, 
um, that you're not supposed to make friends. They're not permitted to make friends with infidels. That's all non-Muslims. You cannot do that according to Islamic law. That's a no-no. And and uh, let's see, I'm having trouble finding it. But there is a verse in the Quran that says that in terms of takia, you are permitted to deceive another person, to mislead them, to make them think that you are their friend so you can save your own skin. But at the same time, you're not allowed to actually be the friend of the person. You can pretend and deceive and make them think you are, but as soon as you get away with it and as soon as, uh, as, soon as it's convenient after that, oh, yeah, it's Surah 3, verse 28, that you're not so, permitted to make friends, but you can deceive them into thinking they're your friend, which is why if you go to a store, clerk, store and there's a Muslim clerk working in there, he'll say, my friend, he'll call you my friend. How are you doing today? And mm-hmm. he'll pretend to be your friend, but if the Muslims ever take over, you know, woe unto you because he's going to turn on you. And now, I, that's hard for a lot of people to believe, but it's true. I have a uh, an Orthodox, well, a conservative Jewish friend who's read the Koran, and he concluded that you you can be a bad Muslim and a good person, but you can't be a good Muslim and a good person. And so I would say that, correct. Would you would you agree that it would be impossible for a Muslim. Now, I want, I'm sure that not all Muslims necessarily share that, and they're not, they're, they're like backslid, there are backslidden Christians, there are Jack Mormons, or what have you. Uh, I'm sure there are some Muslims that are maybe Muslim in name only that don't subscribe to that, uh, secular Muslims. Uh, but uh, if I'm a Muslim in good standing, I really can't honor an oath of American citizenship or to take an oath to be sworn in as a police officer or a soldier or, or to you know, to the Constitution because that would be contrary to Muslim law or Islamic law. Is that, is that true? That is true because if you do that, you are what they call an apostate. Um, ultimately here, what we're talking about is the major doctrine in Islam is jihad. And now, um, every Muslim is supposed to... I'm getting. I'm. I'm going to try to explain and connect the dots here for you. Okay. Uh, you have to get involved in jihad to be a good Muslim. So what you're talking about here is our desire as Christians and Westerners that the Muslims not be good Muslims and essentially be mm-hmm. secular Arabs, which is what you're talking about there when somebody actually doesn't subscribe to these Islamic beliefs. Because if you're moving towards supposedly maturity as a Muslim, you're going to be moving towards jihad. And there's a spiritual, psychological, and doctrinal, theological reason for this. Islam does not guarantee salvation. Mm -hmm. According to Islamic doctrine and Islamic belief, according to the Quran, the Hadiths, and these other things, you can be a good Muslim, you can follow the five pillars of Islam, you can give to charity, you can do all of these things, but if Allah has not decreed that you're going to go to paradise or heaven, you're not going. You can still be, according to Islamic theology, you know, and they can do that, you can get one of them be as hysterical as they want to be about this and denying it. But if you follow the logic of the book Milestones by Sayyid Khatoub and these other Muslim publications written by Muslims for Muslims, you cannot, you can actually be a really good Muslim and still not go to heaven. The mm-hmm. only guarantee of eternal salvation 
in their belief system is to die in jihad. Jihad. So if you want a guarantee, that's why you have so many suicide bombers. That's why U.S. soldiers who supposedly were Muslims and swore the oath, you know, with their fingers crossed behind their back or whatever, you know, eventually became jihadists. That's how was it uh, Malik Nadal Hassan, the army officer back in 2009, 2010, you know, jumped up on the table at Fort Hood, shouted the jihad uh, war cry, you know, Allahu Akbar, and then started shooting all, quote, his fellow soldiers. Our federal government under the Obama administration determined that that was workplace violence for some reason. Yes, that's they right. Couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to decide that it really was uh, was jihad, although he jumped up on the table, shouted the jihad war cry, and started shooting. And then he mm-hmm. had jihad literature all over his all over his apartment. There were web links to, in his computer and everything else. But they said, well, we just can't determine a motive for this shooting. Well, you know, that's what he was doing. He was trying to fulfill his obligation, the greatest struggle in Islam, according to Islamic law, section 09.0, is jihad. And jihad is defined in Islamic law. In their definitive book on the subject, The Reliance of the Traveler, uh, is struggle in war and struggle against non-believers and the infidels. And to die in jihad is to find a favored place in Islamic doctrine. To die in jihad is to guarantee your emergence in paradise on the other side. And that's the only guarantee of salvation they have. And so that's why they all have to advance to that. If you see a Muslim who's not doing any of that, and who really is genuinely your friend, and he's going out of his way to help you, and he's not he doesn't go to the mosque or anything, you know, he's kind of a member there and kind of blows it off or whatever. And he's what, you know, your loyal jihad types like Anjim Chowdhury, the British, you know, Muslim cleric and these others, the leaders of the terrorist groups, ISIS, you know, and all these others will say, this guy's an apostate. Apostate. Uh, we, got about five, we got about five minutes left, uh, but uh, left. But you've got, you made a very interesting point about uh, what, how the Muslims perceive Jesus Christ. Uh, if you could, uh, in the next five minutes, I'm sure it'd take you longer, but we only, we only have five minutes, but if you can go, cut that a little bit. Because there are a lot of people saying, gee, we worship the, we, have the, we all have the same God, we all have the same way to heaven, and that's simply not true. That isn't. And they believe uh, that Jesus did not die on the cross, which means they believe he also could not have risen from the dead. They do not believe that he is God in the flesh because they consider that to be polytheism, and so they accuse Christians of having multiple gods. They don't believe that uh, that he. Well, they say they don't believe he was. Uh, he that he he's, They say he was no more than an apostle. He was not the Son of God, and his mission was limited. And then he say he wasn't crucified. Although at the same time, the Quran says that Jesus was righteous and sinless and did miracles, that he was born of a virgin, he came in fulfillment of prophecy, he was sent with the gospel, he taught no false worship, and they even called him the Messiah. And there's a line in there in Surah 3, verse 45, that he was the word of God. Mm. Which makes it interesting as a dynamic, which also raises the obvious question of why they would follow Muhammad, who the Quran says was a sinner in need of repentance. He did no miracles. Uh, and he's not coming in again, but they do believe Jesus is coming back. And so they have a very exalted view of Jesus, which is greater than and more significant in making Jesus more holy, in a way, 
in the Quran than Muhammad. But that's the that's the deception, you know, the spiritual deception of Islam is they believe in a false Jesus and you know, what essentially amounts to an ironic belief system that their prophet that they don't want anybody to draw cartoons of or whatever mm-hmm. was a sinner in need of repentance who did no miracles. He was unrighteous and he's he's dead and he's not coming back. But Jesus is coming back and he was righteous, born of a virgin, you know, and all these other things. And that he was the embodiment of the word of God and did miracles. So that's the irony I want to leave everybody with here saying, what's going on here? You know, but ultimately what I want to leave everyone with is the thought that what we really need to be doing is exalting Jesus Christ in our own personal lives, living a life that is faithful to the gospel, being willing to, you know, uh, come under, you know, the lordship of Christ, repent of our sin and follow him righteously and then pray pray for the salvation of that Muslim store clerk or that Muslim gal that gets your coffee at Dunkin' Donuts or pray for the the Muslim computer tech or your doctor or your dentist or whoever, the Muslims you know, pray for their salvation and pray that God would take the blinders off of their eyes and allow them to see the truth of who Jesus really is and so they can find real eternal life and guarantee of heaven without having to kill anybody to do it. And that's what we need to be praying for. I think that's, that's excellent, uh, uh, an excellent ending. Uh, people want to get a hold of you or learn about your church or learn about, um, read some of the articles, what can they do? Well, they can uh, look on the Internet at uh, ctknorthshore.tumblr and that's T-U-M-B-L-R dot com. That's our, that's our main church website. And they can find the sermons on ChristTheKingNorthShore dot Podbean dot com. Or they can write an email to me at ChristTheKingNorthShore at gmail dot com. And if they ask, I'll be willing to hook them up and send, you know, some links to things in the articles I've written, you know, for World Net Daily that are still up there because I looked them up a few weeks ago and found that on the Internet, once you put something up there and it's in cyberspace forever, or, <laughs> or at least until the computer crashes. But it, it'll stay up there, and they can still find them. But uh, ctknorthshore.tumblr.com is our primary website we're using now while we're rebuilding the other one. And All right. There you go. All right, Father Carl, thank you. May God continue to bless your ministry. And uh, for all of you listening to our show, God bless you. Until next week, uh, this well, is Hal Sherman you. with... Camp Constitution Radio. Good night. Good night.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.